That, by the way, is Lucy Dacus, so you don't have to write us. That's her Tiny Dust version of that song. She has a more pulsing recorded version of it. It, it fits very much the first segment uh, on our show today on The Nose. I'll explain why in just a second. But first of all, let me introduce to you The Nose, starting with James Hanley, co-founder of the wonderful uh, Cine Studio at Trinity College. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance, sure I left out five things. Uh, Bill Usman is a director of the Media Literacy and Digital Culture Graduate Program at Sacred Heart University. Um, so in our second segment today, we're going to talk about a documentary that is uh, creating quite a, quite a bit of a stir. Uh, it's called Three Identical Strangers. It's the story, uh, you may have heard about it by now, of uh, three young men who at the age of 19 discovered each other, discovered that in fact they had two identical genetically identical replicas uh, of themselves, a fact that had been hidden from them hitherto in their lives. But it's, it's really about an awful lot more than that. Um, it is a documentary that sprawls out and asks a whole bunch of different questions. But before that, we are going to talk about somebody who at least claims maybe she doesn't want to be funny anymore. Uh, her name is Hannah Gadsby. Uh, if you lived in Australia, you would know who she was. You may know who she is now because speaking of creating a stir, uh, her comedy special, if that's the right thing to call it, Nanette, uh, on Netflix has uh, attracted an awful lot uh, of conversation. Uh, and in it, um, Gadsby, who is, you know, I mean, you could sort of say that she's a kind of antipodean uh, Tignataro. Uh, that's probably about <laughs> the closest that I could come to who she is. But she turns out to be maybe not that much like any contemporary comedian. We'll try to explain why and we'll also try not to wreck anything for you. But, um, well, here's Hannah talking about what sort of comedian she is. I should quit. I'm a disgrace. What sort of comedian can't even make the lesbians laugh? Every comedian ever. Oh, that's a good joke, isn't it? Classic. It's bulletproof too. Very clever because it's funny. Because it's true. The only people who don't think it's funny are us lezers. But we've got to laugh because if we don't, proves the point. Checkmate. <laughs> Very clever joke. I, I didn't write that. That is not my joke. Um, it's an old, an oldie, oldie bit of goldie, a classic. It was written, you know, well before even women were funny. Um, and uh, back then, in the good old days, uh, lesbian meant something different than it does now. Back then, it, lesbian wasn't about sexuality. A lesbian was just any woman not laughing at a man. So James, uh, you know, it's interesting that she says checkmate because in a way, Gadsby is playing a pretty complicated game of chess with us 
the audience, right? She's her opening moves uh, seem like the game of somebody who is a fairly conventional, uh, low key uh, comedian making us laugh uh, about contemporary issues, specifically the issue of being a lesbian, specifically a lesbian who grew up in Tasmania, which is she says the Bible Belt uh, of uh, of Australia. Um, and then she starts moving the pieces in a very unorthodox way and, and kind of blocking us in our expectations about what is to come. I don't know. What, overall, what did you make of this? Well, I was, I was totally blown away, blown away by it. I thought that her performance was – it wasn't a performance. It was like an unwrapping of herself that she got the – she grabs the audience and a huge audience, I might add, in the Sydney Opera House, which seems like – Really trying to address an audience in the dark that large with what amounted really to sort of calming the audience down in a way with a sort of conventionality at first. And then she slowly unwraps and starts Mm -hmm. to take on stereotypes, her own pain, and reaches a fever pitch of of uh, self-revealing that I don't think I, I I've had an experience like that. I found myself really drawn in, and by the end of it, it was like going through a whirlwind of her life, and made me think about so many things, about so many of the casual insults and the the, the effect of stereotypes, the the expectations, and the facts of of actually being different in life, and actually having to resort to comedy to live with it, which is really. I mean, her idea that somehow she would uh, she she would talk herself out of comedy was really believable. But it's the very basis of what she's doing. It's an extraordinary paradox. I, absolutely amazing to me. You know, they never show the exterior, but I thought it was interesting. It was the Sydney Opera House. Frank Gehry being that great ripper apart of symmetry. <laughs> you know, and this right. this show rips apart anything we think of uh, 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 in terms of uh, the symmetry of. A comedic set, or you know, a comedy special, which is something we're getting very used to, Carolyn. You know, it's funny that James said the thing about the size of the audience. Uh, you've done a lot of stand-up comedy. I've done a little bit of stand-up comedy. I found myself thinking this might be easier to do in front of fifteen hundred people or two thousand people than in front of one hundred people because she really is steering the ship in some pretty dramatically. Yeah, there's a safety know, in numbers thing. Yeah. A mm-hmm. smaller audience is actually a more terrifying audience. Like the more people that you could make eye contact with, the worse that experience could be. (laughs) So and, you know, when you're in a big forum like that, there's kind of that sense of, you know, that like circle of light on stage kind of like makes you alone. Like it Mm -hmm. it changes the, the way that you are interacting with an audience and the way that you feel comfortable on on stage sometimes. So I think that there's uh, I, I think that this while it seems like, wow, this is a huge forum to be having this kind of very personal journey that she takes you through. But I, I found that less, you know, less intriguing to me uh, than just the whole. I mean, this is a groundbreaking stand up special. Like this is going to go down in the books as something right. that changes totally. every. This is a game changer. Um, and one of the things that's most interesting, interesting to me from this was that she says she doesn't want to be self-deprecating anymore. And I found that fascinating as a comedian because, like, I I think I a lot of my stuff is self-deprecating. And it is, I think, that when you go into comedy, it's because you uh, have these thoughts you want to share and then you figure out these, like, tricks on how to get them out there. 
And uh, a lot of times, like the the way to do that is to make yourself relatable and play upon your own insecurities that you know everyone else has too. Um, and it, it does. Like I had never really thought about. I always thought about it as kind of like a power that you have, like that you're like sharing. You know bonding with people like I remember once I was doing a stand-up gig and this woman in the audience everything I said she was like same same and I was like oh my god shut up but also it kind of I got my jollies from it because like here was this woman who she and I were probably nothing alike like she I, I could actually see her so you know and she was like 20 years older than me and I, I doubt we would be friends, despite how many times she yelled the word same. But the fact that she was connecting to me and like laughing and sharing and a lot of the things that I was talking about, which were kind of some self-deprecating kind of humor where you're talking about those insecurities. So for Hannah Gadsby to say that she doesn't want to do that anymore was fascinating because I something that I always thought was like the power of comedy to connect with people, she's saying is what makes you she found that like a weakness, like she didn't want to do and that. And made her angry. Right. Yeah. So before I go to Bill on this, I do want to sort of say just a, I don't want to, we don't want to wreck anything. On the other hand, there's sort of some things that you, this won't wreck anything and you need to understand them. So what really does happen is at a certain point in this special, um, she, uh, after having kind of raised some warning flags a few times about the fact that she's really kind of questioning the nature of comedy and jokes and whether she wants to do these things, she really steers this whole thing into uh, a very, very serious place and and for stretches of time, several stretches of time, talks in it, as James suggested, just a very searing way uh, about everything that has ever happened to her, basically. Um, and Bill, so, you know, I sort of feel as though Carolyn's right that this is some kind of paradigm shift and and also that you could look at this in a larger context. You know, we've been in here in this room talking about Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock recently in, in instances where at least they started to play with the jokes to serious content ratio and get less and less worried about whether they're going to be funny for the next three or four minutes if they have something more important they want to work on. Yeah, and I think she does that brilliantly. There, the word brilliant is used way too often, I think. You know, my, my breakfast sandwich this morning was brilliant. and but But I do think Carolyn mentioned groundbreaking, and it, I don't think we're being hi hyperbolic when we frame it in this way because she is she's, – she's not only deconstructing her own experiences, but she's deconstructing comedy itself. And she – I think – I sense that there's some internal conflict in her about this because she's both doing comedy but also – castigating comedy at the same time, but then returning to do more comedy. So she's taking us in all kinds of different directions. And we are lulled at first. I have to admit, during the first 20 minutes, I was thinking, I don't know what all the fuss is about. And then by the time we reach the end of it, my wife is sobbing, I'm sobbing. <laughs> we, we are reduced to these little pats of butter by quote stand-up comedy, right? And and um, actually, you know, Jonathan, I want to skip skip ahead to the third clip here. This is kind of a long clip, um, but I think it's maybe worth playing to set up uh, one of the next things I want to talk to uh, the panel about. So, uh, if we could hear a three right now. Do you know who used to be a uh, easy punchline? Monica Lewinsky. Maybe 
If comedians had done their job properly and made fun of the man who abused his power, then perhaps we might have had a middle-aged woman with an appropriate amount of experience in the White House. Instead, as we do, a man who openly admitted to sexually assaulting vulnerable young women because he could. what should be the target of our jokes at the moment? Our obsession with reputation. We're obsessed with it. We think reputation is more important than anything else, including humanity. And do you know who takes the mantle of this myopic adulation of reputation? Celebrities and comedians are not immune. They're all cut from the same cloth. Donald Trump, Pablo Picasso, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Woody Allen, Roman Polanski. These men are not exceptions, they are the rule. And they're not individuals, they are our stories. And the moral of our story is we don't give a We don't give a about women or children. We only care about a man's reputation. What about his humanity? These men control our stories and yet they have a diminishing connection to their own humanity. And we don't seem to mind so long as they get to hold on to their precious reputation. <laughs> reputation. Hindsight is a gift. Stop wasting my time. All right, so that's a minute and 45 seconds of a comedy special where she has actually no, absolutely no interest in making anybody laugh. And it's, it's interesting, James, I was driving back. I had to go to um, Norwalk this week for a sort of uh, like a sexual harassment awareness training session or something like that. Um, and I was driving back and I was listening to Slate Culture Gabfest, which is a very similar show to this one and one that I admire a great deal. And they were talking about Sasha Baron Cohen's new effort and kind of questioning whether it was funny. And Stephen Metcalf kind of got into this speech that I thought was so interesting. I wasn't sure I agreed with it. But one of the things he said was he, he wondered whether comedy was as effective now as it was in the, uh, say, even in the era of the Bush administration. And he said, really, there was sort of a sense at that time that everything was out of balance and equilibrium could be reached, you know, if the right people did the right things. And one of those forces for restoring karma and equilibrium could be comedy. Uh, hence, you have John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, all that kind of stuff. He said, and, and now things feel – there's a, a greater question about whether they're recoverable, whether the things that we prize, whether it's the health of our planet or the health of our democracy, are easily recoverable. And it's almost like comedy is getting crushed by the weight of what we actually needed to do. And I sort of hear that in her. It's like, I, I can't fix what's wrong by being funny. I have to do something else. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that's what her focus is. That's where she's taking the audience and then, the, the, you know, they're laughing at her jokes and the self-deprecation and then she's identifying self-deprecation as something that she's not going to do. And then she's actually going for the jugular in terms of what is the relevance of comedy. And I, I, I absolutely think that that's a really – it's a serious sort of crisis of culture in a sense because we are at a place now where – Everything that happens, it's like the, the trepidation with which you turn on a, a, a news source or look at your computer and you, you just can't – you couldn't make it up. I mean there, there's, a, there's a supposed president, a, a deranged person sending out tweets to a TV show about things that could start a nuclear war. 
and and it's you can't you know comedy is something that is a lever when you feel that there's a base of sort of okay let's bring it let's bring it down a, a notch and let's actually make fun or let's actually make a joke about this and we can feel a little better it's almost like a physical thing but as Hannah Gatsby goes to about herself is that it, it in a time when you are really being oppressed by these things you cannot actually escape to a, some sort some sort of humor that actually you're angry and the anger is not expressed well by humor because it's turned on you and you feel tension that 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 you can't i mean i feel that tension every day looking at this you know uh, people in other countries ask as you're walking by say when are you going to come out of this what's happening here <laughs> you know what, what how have you gone crazy and 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 you know in that context Humor doesn't have the same role it had in the past, and I think she's onto something there, totally. You know, Carolyn, you're talking about this being groundbreaking, but there's also sort of a safety not guaranteed quality to the, which, what Hannah Gadsby has done here. I mean, I, you, you, could, you couldn't easily advise another comic to try anything like this. I mean, I wonder if this is a repeatable feat or it, whether it's just going to be a real anomaly. Um, I think that people will try. Mm. Um, I definitely think like this will not go without being imitated. Um, but I think that she addresses something that I know we've talked about, which is how to be funny in, in this time when you, when things are comedy is, can often be like brilliant comedy can be born from frustration and sadness and, and rage and, and kind of those can be great jumping off points sometimes where you can find humor in things. And, and she's showing that like the, you know, there just might be a point where it's not where you can't necessarily make something funny out of things that are not funny. Um, so that it, it was interesting to where she's like a, a comedian saying like, I've hit a wall. Like I think we've all hit a wall, and that was an that was another fascinating uh, point to me because it it's kind of like sometimes you know like at a funeral where someone's giving a eulogy and and makes a joke and it won't even be a good joke but everyone's just eager to laugh just at that moment. Like somehow sometimes like doing if you're trying to do comedy about current events right now, you're kind of like doing the same thing as that. Like you're just trying to like find something to make people laugh nervously or just desperately at something. So I thought it was really fascinating that she just is like, I'm doing a comedy special, but it is not going to be funny. And that's that to me. It, I was just blown away by this. You know, Bill, I don't know what your experience has been teaching, but uh, mine and I, at least one other professor in my department this spring, well, I think was that if you ask your students what they would like to do a paper about uh, somewhere in the world of political science slash media, an awful lot of them do want to talk about comedy. They're, they've grown up with this. Uh, they've grown up with the idea that some of the sharpest political commentary is comic. They've gotten a lot of their news from sources like The, the Daily Show. And they kind of wonder, you know, they wonder what it means. And, and this thing that we just saw is sort of the gravity of the moment kind of being, being so, having such extreme gravity. It bends the ellipse of comedy. It starts sucking comedy towards a black hole. Uh, and I don't know. What do you, what do you, what do you I, it seems like that's something you're going to wind up teaching about in the oh, semesters to come. Well, actually, in the fall, I'm going to be teaching a course uh, called Documentary Film and Social Change. But one of the things we're going to look at is Bowling for Columbine. 
And can you use comedy? How do you use comedy to address something like school shootings? That seems uh, sacrilegious almost in some ways. But I, I, I don't want to cede comedy to the wrong people. You know, if you watch <laughs> Trump at his rallies, you know, the ones that he goes out and does just in front of his base, he very much wants to be a comedian. Mm-hmm. He goes for the laugh. Unfortunately, then the laugh that people respond to then becomes actual policy. So I don't want to cede that to them, even though she's right that it can be a way to um, make ourselves feel okay with things that we shouldn't be feeling okay about. That, that momentary solve might actually be a problem. I thought of um, – the. Uh, I'm not going to go too deep into German philosophy, I promise. <laughs> but I thought about Please. the way the German political philosopher Theodor Adorno uh, was known for saying to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. Mm. But what people forget is that Fifteen years later, he went back to that and he basically said that he was wrong. Mm -hmm. And and so just a very, very quick quote from Adorno. Perennial suffering has as much right to expression as a tortured man has to scream. Hence, it may have been wrong to say that after, after Auschwitz, you could no longer write poems. You know, with everything that's happening and everything that she experienced and everything that we're experiencing as a society, I don't think we can say you can no longer write jokes. I think that's seeding ourselves to something awful, even if we do acknowledge the way, oh, it was just a joke, can be used to excuse the most horrible things, which is also something that she starts to discuss. Yeah, I'm, James, I wonder if what, what the new mandate might be would have more to do with authenticity. You know, I mean, one of the reasons I thought John Stewart in his heyday was very effective was he seemed very authentic. He didn't pretend to be upset about something. He was upset about something. Right, and exactly. Then, and then he was yeah. funny about it. Yeah. And there are other people who just seem to have kind of learned that form and learned how to perform within the matrix of that form. But, but you know, it seems as though one of the things, one of the reasons that Gadsby is getting all this attention is there's just a lot of authenticity in what she's doing. After she gets done with all the little chess match she plays, which is inauthentic and she's calling attention to its inauthenticity, then then you see something that you don't see that often. It's right. raw and naked. Mm-hmm. It's very it? raw and, and it's a, she talks about anger turned in on self, which, you know, with all the events that happen around you that are unjust and all of the things, the lies that are told – the question is, what do you do with your anger? Where does that go? And and I do think there's a certain veneer of a, a lot of comedians where the humor is sort of like like um, it somehow delegitimizes the anger. And what Hannah Gadsby is is going for is the fact that she has this enormous inner anger about things that have specifically happened to her. And the question is, how do you link that with anger? What do you do with the anger? Where do you take it? What does that make you do? And uh, do you, if you become self-deprecating in that process and you see the anger that then sort of diffused for illegitimate reasons, then you don't do something that makes things change. And I think that that is something that she is clearly at that nexus of wanting to change how those things are affecting her. 
And I think that's something very universal for people seeing injustice in the world, seeing babies taken away from parents, seeing these acts of barbarism that are then thrown off as being, you know, well, we didn't really mean it. You know, this was just a like, like, you know, but then some people really do mean it. And then you, you, you get to actually talk about some of the facts. But so often we don't actually talk about the facts. And we, we in a comedic situation, like I, I really like Stephen Colbert, but I, I have to say I, at the moment I feel he's sort of like, like, well, really? Uh, he's, well, he's learned the form and he knows how to perform a, within the form. Exactly. And so it is such a contrast to Hannah Gadsby, who is actually bringing her own personal struggle right out in front of all these people and actually questioning the whole reason for her doing it and being paid to do it. <laughs> it's like you, you couldn't get more visceral than that. And that goes right to the heart of actually how do you act from day to day based on your personal experience to make the world a better place. Right. Well, I guess we have to sort of maybe wrap here so we'll have time for the other thing. Um, although, yeah, I would like to continue this conversation a little <laughs> bit. One thing I would just quickly say to kind of button up all this is one thing that's become clear in reading some interviews with her and stuff like that, she was prepared when doing this uh, routine, this if that's what you would call it, um, to get out of comedy. Uh, and she was even thinking about going to work for her brother's produce store uh, in Tasmania. But she was ready to go. Now, this has created such a surge of interest in her, it seems as though she's getting offers all over the place. And, and who knows? There's probably some other very interesting next step that she'll take. But I, I do think that one of the ways that this is different, you couldn't very easily do what she does if you weren't really prepared to walk right off the end of the diving board. Uh, I mean, you can't fake something like this. And yeah, it's a big bluff to yeah. <laughs> be called out on. Right. And she, she just does. I mean, I didn't even have to read that in an interview. It's clear she means it. She could just get rid of all this stuff. All right. Let's take a break. We have to talk more about uh, this remarkable documentary we've seen about three separated identical twins, triplets, triplets. That's what they are. And we are back, uh, James Hanley, Bill Usman, and Carolyn Payne in studio with me uh, to do the nose today. Uh, Carolyn just made the point. It's something we've actually all kind of referenced at one point or another. We often look on the nose or, or are just able to find because it exists in some platonic way, uh, what we call a Papulian through line. That is uh, ways in which topics that were not chosen for their connections seem connected somehow. This one was really easy. We have really picked two works to look at this week, which start uh, as – um, kind of fun rides, right? This is going to be fun. This looks like this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and in each case, um, we discover relatively soon that it, it's not going to be entirely fun at all. Uh, so our second entry in this category is Three Identical Strangers. Uh, it is a, a documentary by a British uh, filmmaker, Tim Wardle. Uh, but it's about uh, well, it starts by being about three American young men who at the age of 19 uh, discover that they are not um, 
separate uh, from everybody else in the world the way most people are. They have, uh, in each case, uh, each young man has two identical brothers. And they've, these triplets have been separated at, at the age of six months. Uh, they, didn't, they knew nothing of each other's existence. Um, before we uh, start talking about it, let's just uh, hear a little bit from the film. This probably is from the trailer, if I had to guess. I finally made it to this dump of a dorm room. And before a minute had gone by, who now? Who now is going to come to find Eddie? I had been at college the previous year with Eddie, and I knew that he wasn't coming back to school. As soon as this guy turned around, I, 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 was, I was actually shaking. I was... I, I know I, the color from my face dropped because I knew it was his double. He had the same grin, the same hair, the same expressions. It was his double. And I see this guy's face, and he's like just standing there. The first thing out of my mouth was, were you adopted? And, and I was like, yes. I said, is your birthday July 12th? He said, yes. I was like, July 12th, 1961. Oh my God, I said, you're not gonna believe this. I said, you have a twin brother, you have a twin. Oh my God. All right, so uh, you're hearing uh, one of the three uh, uh, triplets, uh, Bobby, is discovering that there is such a person as Eddie, who is his exact duplicate. There also turns out to be a person named David, uh, who's also in the same situation. And so, Carolyn, at this point, I, I think you made a comparison to uh, the parent trap. For sure. Uh, you know, that there's, <laughs> there's a sense in which, wow, this kind of funny little madcap thing is going to you know, unfold before our eyes for these three mirror images. Yeah, because who, who, what kid, like, didn't watch the parent trap and be like, wow, when I go to summer camp, maybe I have a secret twin that I'll meet up with and we'll find each other. But then, yeah, this takes the dark turn that it turns out if you did have a secret twin or triplet, uh, that maybe that wouldn't be all fun and games like it was for Lindsay Lohan right. or Haley so, Mills. So there's some things that we're not going to tell you, but uh, but there's no way to talk about this without, I think, explaining at least that it turns out that it's uh, the fact that these three t triplets have been uh, separated at the age of six months uh, and raised without any awareness of one another is connected to some, not, not just by happenstance or <laughs> caprice or anything like that, but uh, by some attempt to study something. We, we kind of, um, well, Bill, one, I think one of the things that you said is that this is in many respects turns into a fable uh, of the, the kind of moral neutrality of the social sciences at times. Yeah. Um, in one of the things that we find out without without revealing too much is that they they are being studied. They are part of this uh, social scientific experiment, and you know there is a long history of this happening to people with some really, you know, terrible outcomes. We could look at the Tuskegee study of, um, it was called the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis in the Negro male, which happened for 40 years between 1932 and 1972, where uh, black men were infected with syphilis and not told and not given any treatment just to see how it would progress throughout their bodies. We could look at um, Stanley Milgram's experiments about obedience and whether people are willing to, they thought, administer a electric 
shocks, deadly electric shocks to other people just because they were being told to do so. We could look at Zimbardo's um, Stanford prison experiment, which went horribly wrong um, in the 1970s when people began to treat each other brutally. This was all, you know, this was happening in the 1960s and 1970s. At the same time that um, an American historian, Richard Hofstadter, wrote about the paranoid style in American politics. And he was referring to uh, specifically the Goldwater candidacy for president. But I do think it has some applications to this, which is we all kind of walk around sometimes wondering if there's these larger forces that are controlling our lives (laughs) in ways that we don't understand. And most of the time, it's not the case. But for these young men, unfortunately, it was. And it it did have a very, very bleak impact on their lives, so as the, we see as the right. film progresses. They're kind of in the Truman Show. Uh, but, you know, um, I, I know we all want to talk a little bit about some of the moral questions that come up here, James. But before we do that, um, can we just talk about this qua-documentary? Um, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting movie in the sense that um, it, it is trying to throw a, a lasso around really three or four um, – Horses that are running through the darkness, uh, and 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 as a result, I sometimes felt as though it, it couldn't get anywhere because it had so many things that it had to deal with. Right. I mean, I think number one at the base of it, there's a fascinating story to get told, which actually I don't think did get told in the film uh, because of its structure and because of the attitude, perhaps, of the makers. Uh, I I find this kind of documentary to be. Like um, I don't know, the, there are elements to it, um, like for instance, dramatizing things, for <laughs> instance, or like one of the things that always uh, it triggers me is is like music appearing unexpectedly, um, not specifically in this, but in other documentaries that are really um, it, it, they are just teetering on the edge of entertainment, as if that that was the only way to get people to watch this awful story. And I think that it is a truly awful story for lots of reasons, and it it really betrays the the craven nature of a certain sector of academia, number one, and also people's willingness to buy into the idea that there's a greater thing to be discovered here at the expense of the people who are victims of it. And that I don't think the film truly addresses. So right. I have a yeah. problem with documentaries in, in general for – some of the reasons that, that you just said, and one of them is sometimes I feel like to me, and, and I you don't really usually get this, if you're going to make a documentary, I want like new knowledge to burst forth. Uh, you know, I want, I want like, I know you don't always get resolutions for things in life, but I feel like there should be kind of this like point that it's like building towards. And I felt like this one struggled with that. Um, and like for a while, I kept falling down a rabbit hole watching these like Tupac do- documentaries, like about who shot Tupac, and like yeah. you, you know, you just know they're going nowhere, but like you keep fall, they just take you in circles. They're like dramatic fragments, right? Exactly, yeah. and you're just going through circles with it. And this this documentary had moments where you're moving past yeah. that circle, yeah. but a lot of it exactly. just takes you in that same circle. Right. Yeah. I I would not. I would not have wanted to miss this documentary. I think it's a really interesting and no, a very important documentary. That being said, and yeah. also, it is such a fascinating story. I, I think I shared with all of you, they're actually making a movie right, about this right, now. Right. Like a, And that, to me, is 
uh, I, I'm not sure that that yeah. needs to be I, happening. I, I, <laughs> to me, to me, alarm bells rang when I read that. I thought I, I just, I can just imagine. Well, because I pictured the dramatic more. reenacting scenes from yeah. this documentary, yes, yes. and I was like, oh no, it's just gonna, it's that. I do worry about this this feature film that they're making of it. Yeah, is we going should be worried to, about that. Is going to totally indulge in the considerations that that yes. you had, James. Yeah, absolutely, because that's what will basically get it. it, it it'll turn it into a dramatic amplification of fragments. It's a dramatic and, parent yeah, trap. And especially yeah. when Scarlett Johansson <laughs> is cast as all three of the twins, <laughs> that's going to be I'm telling you, really it's going to be Arm, Army Hammer. He already did this with the Winklevoss twins. He can do it. He oh can do goodness. three. Um, yeah, I... I well, it is hard to talk about this thing because there are a lot of things that we don't want to, um, to to wreck for you. But one thing that I can tell you just because it's readily apparent at the beginning, it, it, you really only are hearing from two of the three uh, um, siblings uh, in this triplet set. Uh, you also uh, eventually meet uh, a pair of uh, female twins who are also uh, handled in exactly the same way. Their existence is a close parallel to this other story that you're f- uh, following. You hear other tales of perfidy. I, there is a scene uh, that's recreated for us in one of those dramatic recreations that James and Phil don't especially like that much. Um, uh, it's, like, it's like a cloud of quantum of solace, you know, where the bad guys are drinking champagne thinking nobody can see them. Um, and I don't know, Carolyn, one thing that I thought was one of the, so there's uh, these two, two triplets who are uh, – two of the triplets are talking to us a lot. It's David and Bobby. Um, but we don't really know that much about David and Bobby. You know, I mean one of the things that we would like to know given the lives that they've led, these men are – they appear to be in their 50s now. I didn't really do the math. But, um, you know, is – I don't know. Did how did their marriages work out? How did their careers work out? I got out? the sense what, that yeah. they didn't want it to right. be about them. Um, and although they, they may have also like, drawn a line. Yeah, a I think that line, they too. certainly did. But there were like little fascinating reveals. Like I was, I became obsessed with the fact when there's a part where they get up, they're doing like a seated interview, and um, David goes to stand up, and his sweater has a hole in it. I don't know if anyone else saw I that. Did, I, did, I, noticed, I was so I fascinated that. by that because yeah. that was to me just such a huge insight into like, did he just not care? And he was the one who like, had been the, raised in a more working class home, right? As well, so yeah. you do wonder. But I mean, you know, he clearly has done well for himself with the the restaurant and every. But like the fact that he was he chose he dressed himself for this documentary interview in a sweater that had a hole in it. So there were like these little windows into. I mean, that's just kind of like a, a just a glimpse into who who he might be or how he just is. But I I felt like they didn't want to be they didn't want this to be about them as people. It, it, they did not reveal a lot about themselves, well, nor think, did the people that they were who were their friends. I mean, they talked about their past selves, yeah. but not who they are now. I I don't think it really needed to be about them, actually, and oh, I don't I, think yeah. it could be. No, um, and that's one of the failings of dramatizing parts that make it appear it would be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're dealing with uh, there's a parallel here with Hannah Gadsby, you know, and this issue of opening yourself up and actually putting yourself out there and displaying your anger and explaining your anger. Their faces definitely opened themselves up yes. and, and revealed so That's much. True. Yes. Uh, especially uh, Bobby's. I felt like his yeah. face to me, so sad. there were just heartbreaking moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, that, I, is that what made you cry? <laughs> Yeah, that was part of it, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. and then something else, which we won't talk I, I, about. I, I think that that is actually the essence of what a, the documentary 
is is should be doing in a sense, but it should be going through to the roots of how this got there and how they were treated and how decisions were made and how bizarre things like Yale locking up the documents for till 2066, you know, and crazy stuff like that, you know, so that basically people don't have to take responsibility for their actions. And all of these things are really, they're substantive matters to a horrible injustice, a horrible crime that was committed. And uh, to the, as a backdrop to that, if you explain that clearly enough, you don't have to know all of the details of their personal lives. As you say, you can read, you can see what mm -hmm. they're saying. You can see it on their faces. Well, there's also, I had kind of a, maybe a kind of a Janet Malcolm moment watching this thing in the sense that this movie is very much about the violation of people's lives and privacies and destinies uh, and in a very much a kind of a Truman Show way. But as I was watching it, it may have just been the mood that I was in, I started to feel because, you know, I mean, Malcolm writes about how any act of journalism is like a thief in the night trying to get in places where it's not necessarily wanted, trying to pry loose facts uh, that people are not necessarily willing to let go of, that there is a almost adversarial relationship between the quest and, and, and the people being questioned. Uh, and and I, at a certain point, there were uh, I, I I also for Bill's same reason won't mention the exact moment I was feeling this acutely. But uh, there were moments here where I thought I feel a little bit implicated. The more I watch this, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I feel implicated in that invasion of their privacy. Yeah. It's just it's it's still going. Uh, anyway, uh, we should probably stop there. Uh, the movie uh, is called Three Identical Strangers. It's playing at Real Artways right now, and also at Mr. Gorlick's uh, Theater in Madison. I don't think that's what. It's called Mr. Gorlick's Theater in Madison. That's Madison Art. Madison Art. There we go. Uh, and, or, or Mr. Gorlick's Theater in, in Madison. All right. Anyway, we'll be back with some recommendations. Three little unexpected children simultaneously. The doctor brought us, and you can see that we'll be three forever and a e i o. You would know how agonizing being triple can be. Each one is individually the victim of the clinical day. E i o. Every summer we go away to Baden, Baden, Baden. Every winter. So uh, ordinarily here is where we do the thank yous or the credits or whatever you might want to call them. Uh, let me tell you the situation in which we find ourselves. Uh, Jonathan McPants, who's producing the show today, is just uh, back from his honeymoon, which was last week. Betsy Kaplan is on vacation. Uh, Josh Nalea, our other producer, is on medical leave. It's actually kind of a happy kind of medical leave. I, I don't want to violate his privacy by saying more than that, but it's a, it's a happy story rather than a, a bad story. Kion uh, uh, Wolf is off today. <laughs> <laughs> so it really is just me and, and uh, Jonathan. Uh, and so Jonathan has done everything because I didn't do anything. Um, so, so that's who gets all the thank yous. Uh, and we're going to be back on Monday. Betsy Kaplan will be back on Monday. We'll, we'll start moving back towards full strength uh, at that time. There also, we have no interns today. And it's, it really is very quiet around here. Uh, but it's not quiet here in the studio where we've got Carolyn Payne and Bill Usman and uh, James Hanley. Bill, you want to uh, start off with the recommendations here? Sure. Um, so normally I go very darkly serious and bleak. <laughs> but since Colin made me spend the whole weekend crying, right. I decided I had to uh, endorse a couple things which just make me feel good. So very quickly, two things. Uh, the first is a show on uh, the FX network. And this is a really interesting network because it is part of the Murdoch empire. But as vile as Fox News is as a cultural force in our society, FX is doing some really great television. And 
a show that just finished its second season is called Legion. And it is part of the Marvel Universe, but it's a very, very different aspect of the Marvel Universe. And it's a wacky, bizarre, experimental, almost avant-garde kind of show. And I just find it thoroughly entertaining. And if you liked Downton Abbey... Yeah, the lead is Matthew yeah. Crawford. There are all kinds of interesting people in it. John Hamm <laughs> pops up like in a voiceover with John this pseudo documentary. Um, so it's 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 uh, Gene Smart's in it. It's it's really fascinating. And then very quickly, uh, the new album by the Cowboy Junkies is called All That Reckoning, and it is terrific. Um, it's even though their name is the Cowboy Junkies, it's not country. It's meditative, atmospheric rock that I think just feels really good for your soul, and I can't stop listening to it. Hmm. All right. Uh, Carolyn Payton, what would you like to Um, All right. So uh, I want to recommend adopting a furry friend. I recently lost my cat, uh, who was a terror in her, but um, I had had her since I was a teenager, and I just adopted this week an adorable kitten, Um, and it, going through the process of adopting an animal, you realize like how many animals are out there. This uh, is, by the way, the second straight week of kitten endorsements, but that's fine. Oh, really? <laughs> with John, John Dink. Dink. Okay. All right. Well, I didn't. I didn't hear that because I was out in Arizona directing a show, so I was not here for that to know that it was already endorsed. But that's yeah, okay. go get an animal of any kind. And um, also, if you're looking for a fun, frivolous show, but it's not totally frivolous. There are, it, it, it makes you think, and it's well done um, on Netflix. It's a British show called 100% Hotter, sort of like a British what not to wear, but it goes beyond, it goes like deeper than surface level, like what what not to wear kind of would go a little below, but this is really fascinating and the people they have on, uh, and it's just, it's fun and, and it's it's something, it's worth watching, believe it or not. And I'm not normally the kind of person who would be like, hey, watch this makeover show. Just trust me. It, 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 it makes you feel good, and uh, it's well done. All right. James Hanley. Um, I just wanted to uh, remind people about the wonderful farmers, Charlotte Ross and Jonathan Janeway at Sweetacre mm. Farm, and uh, the, the incredible produce they're, they're bringing to the market in the West End. But also, do get on their mailing list, um, they, they, their email list. Uh, they send out wonderful emails with pictures of the farm. And it is just kind of a reassurance in the midst of all the chaos. Absolutely amazing. And the other thing is, as a unique thing at Cine Studio, the next week we're showing a physical film, 70-millimeter print of Lawrence of Arabia, Mm. which is a new restoration on physical film. Uh, We actually still have our film projectors, and they're at the highest possible technical level. And so it's a real opportunity starting tonight and running through Thursday. I I really – I want to sort of double endorse that too. Just First of all, the last time I saw Lawrence of Arabia was also at Trinity Cine Studio. Um, But there's certain movies where if you're not going to see them – Big, don't see them at all, or like I mean, I I don't know whether Lawrence Arabia of Arabia is in that category. Maybe you could still get quite a bit out of it seeing it on your forty-six inch Samsung. But really, there are some movies. I mean, Bill's not you're nodding too, right? I mean, there's some yeah. movies where there's I, I there are movies like you know just like two thousand and one yes. at Cine Studio last week, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and there are movies like Melancholia and Tree of Life and stuff. I wouldn't even oh, bother yeah. seeing yeah. them if you're not going to show them on a big screen. Yeah. Um, all right, so what am I going to endorse here? Um, Okay, I'm going to 
Margaret endorsed a concept, which I'm sure I didn't invent. I know I didn't invent it, uh, but uh, but I, it's uh, I lay claim to it anyway. And I call it the two-person book club. And what I do with uh, what I'm doing with my son right now, and I've done it in the past. And part of it is just to make sure, because I'm still parenting him, uh, even though he's 28, I still feel like I have to play this important role. And uh, is we uh, get some books, uh, and uh, we um, uh, I'll read one, he'll read another, and then we swap. Uh, and then when we're done with that, we kind of discuss the books. We've done this uh, once in the, in the past. So he's very interested in gangsters right now. So uh, I'm reading James uh, Elroy's um, American Tabloid. Uh, he's reading a Don Winslow novel. I can't even remember which one it is. Uh, but uh, and then we'll we'll swap them. So we we don't belong to book clubs. We don't know enough people to be able to do that. <laughs> but um, it's but it's, it's sort of a nice way to get a conversation going with somebody you know about about a book and or maybe a couple of books. And the other thing is. I guess this is more of praise than an endorsement. But I've been thinking lately, and maybe this is sort of fits into some of the things we've been talking about today, particularly with Hannah Gadsby. You know, I mean, we feel very challenged in the present moment. Um, and, and like, who, you know, who is there uh, can, who rises to that challenge, who seems prepared for the moment that we're in right now? Uh, you know, who, who really is our Luke Cage? You know, who's our superhero going to save us? And I feel like David Remnick might be one of those people. I, I, I've been thinking lately that David Remnick in this pantheon of great New Yorker editors, you know, Harold Ross, William Sean, Tina Brown, Robert Gottlieb, and there have been very, very few New Yorker editors at all, that Remnick may be the greatest of them. I mean, he can do so many different things. He's still writing. He's got a piece in the current issue uh, and uh, he's uh, um, adapted to the New Yorker radio, radio hour with uh, genuine skill and uh, alacrity uh, and he, he – seems to be able to function in so many different milieu, an expert on uh, Russian history and Russian politics, but also on Muhammad Ali and also, I mean, there just also doesn't seem to be any end to what he can do. So um, I just would, you know, remind you anyway that, uh, the, you know, maybe David Remnick will save us all. I think it's going to take more than just him, but uh, that's a good place to start. Uh, and I'd also like to thank this wonderful panel, uh, James Hanley and Bill Usman and Carolyn Payne. Uh, thanks to Jonathan McPants. We'll be back on Monday. <laughs>